hear these words from the book that we love. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him from the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hands and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and everything that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're studying this difficult series of chapters, really difficult really spiritually dark, really sobering, really destructive um, chapters of the Bible. And uh, it's actually appropriate that we do that during the season of Advent. It's a season when we cry out, how long, Lord, until you bring the relief we're all waiting for? You know, we're looking in our hearts towards Christmas, the same way that Israel did in the Old Covenant, saying, when's that Messiah going to come? Remember, remember our grandfathers used to tell us about Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets saying the, the, the Messiah is going to come. Like, when's that going to happen? How long? It sure is bad now. And in Advent, we remember how they waited, and we wait for him to come again. And the context for the light coming into the world, the reason it, it shines so brightly, is our trouble now. And we remember some of their trouble then. 
And this is one of the toughest seasons in, in the scriptures that we read about. Six, seven months ago, if you're just joining us or have joined us in the last six, seven months, six, seven months ago, uh, we did a slow walk through Genesis chapter one and two, the very first chapters of the whole Bible. And we saw that the text of those first pages of the Bible seemed to be designed to answer three questions. Not every question you can put to them. Three main questions. Where are we? Where, not this church, but you know. Where, where, is the, where, where is this world we found ourselves? Where, what is it really? Where are we? Secondly, who are we? And thirdly, what are we for? Where are we? Who are we? What are we for? And in Genesis 8, as humanity emerges from this flood, the same questions are actually revisited in this new creation that were brought up at the first creation. I'm going to show you what I mean. In order to go forward, we need to go back a little bit, briefly. Those three questions, where are we, who are we, what are we for? First, where are we? You can ask the question, where are we? And a lot of us, maybe a lot of our neighbors, would give a strictly materialist answer to that question. Well, we're the third planet from the sun in a solar system. Our sun's called Sol. We're part of that system, and we're in the Milky Way galaxy, which is also kind of a supercluster all of its own of about 100,000 galaxies stretching across 500 million light years. That's where we are. And of course that's true, but that's not what was of first importance in the hearts of the first recipients of these words. Where are we also, no, put it better, where are we really? That's true, the strictly materialist view. Where are we really, though? We're in a temple. Genesis 1 talks about the creation of all this stuff, and then right at the beginning of Genesis 2, it says God rested. Seventh day, God rested. Now, in the ancient world, temples were built explicitly for divine rest. It was a resting place for a god, or in this case, the god. This was crystal, crystal clear to the original readers. Oh, that's what this is, this cosmos we found ourselves in. It's a temple, and that means everything is for worship. Everything in this place is, belongs to the God whose temple this is. And we're the most important, most precious things in it, but none of it's ours. That's where we are. That's Genesis 1 and 2. We're in a temple. Who are we? That second question. Genesis 1 calls us image of God. Image of God. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. In the ancient world, again, the very last and most precious thing you would put in a temple after it was constructed was the image of the God that was created. It's the way you would approach that image. That's how you interacted with the God. That's how, the, that's how that God made its influence known in the world. Now, we're talking about the true and living God, right? Those false gods, their images were made of wood or stone, sometimes of precious metal, and God said, no, 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 no. My images are not going to be wood or stone or precious metal. My images are going to be living, breathing, multiplying, loving, living beings. And they're priceless. 
every single one of them. That's who we are. Where are we a temple? Who are we image of God? Image of God. It's worth noting just for a second how much this idea has been giving across the ages. The UN Declaration of Human Rights says that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity. The U.S. Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all mankind is created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I think it's really interesting that Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident because obviously across history, not everybody's found that to be self-evident. I mean, looking at how we're murdering each other and how would you know that anyway? Would you go across the world and look at every single person who's ever existed and observe them empirically and say and determine this person is, is dignified? No, this is a statement of faith and folks, it's slipping. This is not an observable fact that all people are created equal. It is a statement of faith in the living God who makes us in his image. And it's the center of our worlds. And it's endlessly important for living in this temple. Fast forwarding a little bit. Genesis 3 forward, really up until this flood moment, makes clear that what happened was the images took over the temple. The images in the temple rebelled against the God of the temple, making the temple, of their, own, temple their own, and murdered one another. This is where Genesis 6 takes us, if you were with us for those early weeks in the flood narrative. The images in the temple murder one another until the, the temple is so profaned, so desecrated with violence, and unholy pacts with one another, and really with demons that it is an absolute obscenity, the temple is, this temple place that we're in. Good is hunted, righteousness is hunted, only evil runs the show, so God basically just accelerates what mankind has chosen. This temple world is washed away, and he starts again with this new humanity, new creation. That brings us to Genesis 8, but that's not all. That is Genesis 8. The entire chapter after that judgment goes right back to a reworking of Genesis 1. I'm going to look real quickly at some of the verses that I read very quickly. I'm going to go back. The entire chapter of Genesis 8 parallels Genesis 1 and 2, which I just described for you again. Look again at verse 1. At the, at the second half of verse 1, it says, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, remember, we've talked about this a number of times. The Hebrew word for wind is the exact same word as spirit. It's actually the same in the Greek, different Greek word than Hebrew, but the, uh, the concept's the same. Wind and spirit are one and the same. So when we read in Genesis 8.1 that the wind spirit was over these waters, we should hearken back to Genesis 1-2, where it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Just as at original creation, here in new creation. Moving on. Do you remember in those six days, as, as it's put to us in Genesis 1, we talked about how the first three days were a forming of creation, the next three days were a filling. So it starts off, there's uh, this, this separation of waters above and water waters beneath. It's mysterious. And then it says, 
that the day three, the waters were cleared away for the dry land. And then day, day four, it's filled, the, the heavens are filled with luminaries. Day five, the seas and the skies are filled. And then last of all, last of all, like it's the crown of creation, comes all the animal life and then ultimately human beings. Look at the order of Genesis 8. Verse 2 talks about the fountains of the deep, that's the waters below, and the windows of heaven, that's the waters above, both being closed. That's day two of creation, folks. The waters above and below were separated. Same thing happening here in new creation. That's verse two. Verse three and four comes the clearing away of the dry land, just like in day three. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Then verse 6 through 12, we get the filling. Isn't it interesting that just like, what's, what's, what are the first animal lives that, life that fills the sky in Genesis 1? It's birds and fish. Before any animals emerge from the ark, what do you get here in verse 6? Noah starts sending out birds, filling the sky with bird life, just again paralleling that first, first creation account. And then verses 13 to 19, you get these land animals finally coming out of the ark, and especially the people, the accent on people. Noah, though, this time with his wife and his son and his wives, making their way out onto the ground after it dries. And then that famous commission is restated, actually for the first of three times in the next seven or eight verses into chapter 9. Be fruitful and multiply. Folks, I mean, that's a couple chapters of theology textbook right there that I just kind of breezed through. But you've been with us, a lot of you, and so, so this is kind of a rehashing. What's the point? Great, John, what's the point? The point is those first two questions. Where are we? After all the chaos, we're still in a temple. After all the chaos, God says, I'm coming back to my temple. Who are we? Despite everything, despite the murder, the obscenities, the horrors, the intentions of mankind's heart being, the text says, only evil all the time. I mean, just think about that phrase. Only evil all the time. He says, I'm not giving up on them. They're my images. There's not a plan B. Not really. There is a commitment here from God for humans to become what they are intended to be. So I'm just going to end on that third question. What are we for? Actually, the answer to the what are we for question is way clearer here than it was in Genesis 1 and 2. Are we meat suits? <laughs> are we slave labor? Are we biological terrorists who are basically just combing through the earth's resources until it's all dead? We're image of God. What does that mean? What are we for? The way it was put in Genesis 2 is that God put mankind in the garden to serve and keep it. Now, in the Old Testament, that is worship language. That's what the priests did in the temple. They served and they kept it. And what do you do in a temple anyway? You worship. Folks, we're for worship. It's what we're for. It's all the way down. The first action in verse 20 of a new humanity is worship. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let me take a step back for a second. 
Um, there is a comedian actor named Russell Brand that I never liked. <laughs> Just for my part. No offense. If you like him, you think he's funny, that's great. We all have our own tastes. I never liked him. Um, he wrote a book about five years ago, though, called Recovery. And it's about the fact that he, for like 14 years up until that point, had been in some form of recovery from like all these different addictions, alcohol, you know, narcotics, sex, uh, food, uh, experiences, other kinds of just empty relationships, just risks. Um, and he wrote this book called Recovery about his entrance into a 12-step program. And what happened was, as, as he began getting really, really involved in a 12-step program, uh, some of his closest friends were like, you know, you're getting really into this. It's almost like religious how into this you are. Are you part of a cult? And this is how he responded. He said, in working through a 12-step program, I feel like, not like I've joined a cult, but actually that I've been liberated from a cult. It was a cult that told me that I'm not enough, that I need to be famous to be of value, that I need to have money to live a worthwhile life, that I should affiliate, associate, and identify on the basis of color and class, that my role in life is to consume, that I was to live in a darkness only occasionally lit up by billboards and screens, always framing the smiling face of someone trying to sell me something. I feel like I've been liberated from that cult in this new process I've begun. I don't want to buy the phones and food and the prejudice at low cost, with low values, with low frequency thinking. I tell my friends, we are in a cult by default. We just can't see it because its boundaries lie beyond our horizons. That made me like him. I think that's deeply true. He's saying, not only is everyone religious in the world, but everyone has an altar and everyone's making sacrifices on it. Because the scriptures agree with Russell Brand. Sorry. That worship is what we're for. And it goes all the way down. You can't uproot the altar from the human heart. But the human heart is an altar. You can choose what you offer on it and to whom. But you can't uproot the altar. So the, the experiment from Genesis 3 up until now has been... Why don't I put the whole world on my altar and offer it to myself? And all the horrors of the world have flown from that. And each time we do this, we, we, we do this, we participate in the horrors of Genesis 3 through 6, and we pass it on. But just for a moment in Genesis 8.20, humanity returns to what it is for. Let me end like this. I think this passage points us to do two things that essentially every single passage in Scripture is calling us to do. Repent and believe. Remember Mark 1? Uh, we looked very carefully at the Gospel of Mark for a year and a half. Jesus comes following John the Baptist brings what Israel was waiting for, the Messiah's on the scene. What's the very first thing that he says? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, one of those theses right at the beginning was, when Jesus said that, repent and believe, he meant that that's your whole life. Yeah, you believe once, 
there's that fresh beginning like baptism. But it's actually also a daily thing. Repent and believe. How does this passage call us to to repent and believe? Well, listen to this. In the constant offerings we're making from the altar of the heart, in the constant offerings that we cannot stop offering to ourselves, to the world, to an addiction, to another person, to a false god, to a demon, maybe to the true and living God, in the constant offerings we're making, I call us this Advent to ask, What are we offering and to whom? In the morning, what will I offer today and to whom? In the evening, what have I offered and was it fulfilling? How's it working for me? Is it right? Is it what I'm for? And if we don't know where else to look, we can always start with our wallet, our time, and our attention. I mean, they tell the story, don't they? Is this a fitting way to worship? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of all of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Actually, that word pleasing is the same idea that we get in Genesis 8. God smelled the aroma coming up. Yes, he smells it. This is what humanity's for. That's the aroma to God. Offering on the altar of our hearts, praise to him. That's repentance, believe. That's the other thing. Two sides of the same coin, repent and believe. It's really interesting what we read in verse 21. Read with me again. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For for the, like in other words, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's like, that's like a sentence that doesn't totally make sense to us. It's a paradox. I will never curse the ground again because his heart's always going to be evil. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing as I have done. What does this mean? As soon as God receives the aroma of right worship from, from Noah, he basically says, I know they're all going to do it again. <laughs> Isn't that what he's saying? As soon as one guy finally does it right, he says, this is going to happen again. That's what he's saying. He's saying, because of man's condition, I cannot base their future just on their own works of faithfulness. Not even on their own repentance alone, but on my promise to be merciful to them. If this thing's going to keep going, if this temple is going to keep going, being what I intend it to be, if these images are going to keep being what they're for, i got to uphold them somehow. Our repentance is not just a renewed commitment to be good boys and girls. How many people did you hear say a version of that this morning? We didn't script that. If you're wondering, we do not write people's spiritual snapshots before they come and bring them. We rarely even edit them unless they're like five pages long. How many people had that story My repentance is not just a renewed commitment to be a good boy or girl. Repentance literally means turning. Turning from offering the world to myself to the one who makes whole, who gives rest, who is merciful, whose promise stands on my worst day as well as on my best. One last Russell Brand note. 
the tagline for the book was, why should you read this book? This book doesn't come down from a mountain. It comes up from the mud. My qualification is not that I am better than any of you. My qualification is that I'm worse than all of you. And that's why I have something to say. Put it in the words of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King used to call Christianity a religion of pessimistic optimism. Pessimistic optimism. This is, this is straight from his mouth, one of his sermons. He says, Christianity is a combination of pessimistic optimism because it sees over against man's tragic state the graciousness of God's mercy and love and his forgiving power. But you need both. The context for his amazing grace is our terrible need, which we can't get out of on our own. Pessimistic optimism. And of course, this love and forgiving power are expressed ultimately in Jesus Christ. In these last verses, God is essentially saying, of course they're going to need another cleansing, but they need a cleansing that won't totally wipe them out. And this is exactly what Christ offers on the cross. The shed blood of the Son of God freely offered for the covering, the cleansing, the forgiveness of the world. It's a merciful, personal, loving commitment that we may receive relief from judgment, though it costs him everything. It's the story of grace right here in Genesis 8. MLK ended his sermon as a lot of Baptist pastors do. If you know any Baptists, I do. I love them. They're great. He ended his sermon with an altar call. You know about altar calls? It's like at the end of the sermon where like, people are invited to like, come forward and uh, you know, they don't literally lay down on an altar usually. <laughs> Christ is the once for all sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice yourself. But it is symbolically saying, I offer myself back to the one who offered everything for me. In altar calls, you come to a common altar and make an offering of your whole life to God in response to Christ's offering for you. This is essentially what's sealed in baptism, which we saw today. Someone offering their life to Christ who first gave himself for them. We're not going to do that today. We're going to receive communion instead, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the call that I offer to you in Jesus' name is offer your life back. Offer your life back in worship. Offer your life back to the one who has offered his life for you. It's the only way to find true rest in this life. And it's what you're for. It's what you're for. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.